Hello, and welcome to The Workflow Show, where we provide some workflow therapy and discuss development, deployment, and maintenance of secure media asset management solutions. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer and Developer at Chesapeake Systems. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect at Chesapeake. And today, we are continuing our series on media and entertainment basics. So specifically on storage, and this is part two of this uh, several part series, and we're going to be picking up with our discussion where we left off in the last episode. So on the last show, we started talking about storage, and we, we, we focused primarily on file systems and block storage. For this episode, we're going to start off the discussion with object storage and on-prem and cloud, because you can have both with object storage. We're going to talk about different tiers, like production, nearline, archive, backup. Uh, we're going to talk about business continuity. And uh, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about capacity and bandwidth tuning of different types of storage. Um, but before we get to that, we have a few quick things we want to mention to our listeners. First, you can reach out to us directly with any questions or thoughts you have on anything we cover at workflowshow at chessa.com. And we're also trying to get to know our audience better, so let us know how you found out about the Workflow Show and uh, reach out to us over email or at ChessaPro on Twitter. And if you enjoy listening to the Workflow Show, we have great news. We'll be producing content on a more frequent basis. So please subscribe to the podcast, and that way you'll know when to tell your friends and coworkers about the new episode you just got a notification about. Right? Right. Cool. So... Let's get into our discussion, Ben. Um, let's talk about object storage. So many of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard of object storage and are probably using object storage all the time, right? And well, we all are, whether we know it or not, right? As part of everything we do on the interwebs, as part of the service-oriented architectures out there in the world that are providing every service that we use online, some way, in some shape, we're using object storage. That's right. And object storage is, is, is a bit different than, uh, than what we talked about on the last episode. Uh, it, can, it can be a little confusing if you don't really know like, what it looks like on the back end. At least that's the way it is for me. I, I, I'm just like, ah, I just have to see a right. diagram and whatnot. But what are some of the differences? What's the okay. big deal? So first, let's talk about what the heck is an object, right? Yeah. Simple. It's a file. What the big difference is in object storage versus, say, our, our usual hierarchical file system that we're used to, that we see inside our computers, that we see inside of our shared storage volumes, is that there are advanced methodologies for communicating with the storage programmatically. Um, hmm. So... Another big difference with the object storage is that it's a flat file system versus a hierarchical file system, right? And so that's where we start to talk a little bit about the buckets or the containers for the storage. And what does it mean to have a flat file system versus a hierarchical file system? Well, that means there's only one directory per bucket, meaning ah, that- So all of those objects are all in the bucket and that's it, right? Right, right. What There's we, no uh, like folders or anything like that. Nope, it's just one container. So uh, that's okay. where we get the strange but useful name of bucket. Which always gotcha. makes me think of slopping files around on some farmstead somewhere out in the Midwest. 
Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that so that sounds to me like it could it could be a mess. Well, but that's where we come into the magic of cloud storage, or let's not even call it cloud storage. Let's just call it object storage for now, because a lot of cloud storage is object storage, but there's also some file level and there's also some block level in the cloud too. So just talking about object storage, we'll just talk about that. So the magic behind Uncle Jeff's magic buckets is the way that you communicate with them, right? And right, that okay. would be through REST API. Oh, some sort of interface, I would wager. Right. 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 And we should probably say, for some of our listeners who might not understand what a REST API is, let's define it. It's a represent... Let me see if I can spit this out. A representational state transfer application programming interface, which is a mouthful okay. for what, Jason? It's basically we're requesting something and getting a response from some program. Right, yeah, right. it's a way to interact with the storage programmatically, which is a really cool thing to do. We can program the storage to list out its contents, to put files into the buckets, to get files, to delete files, to do all sorts of cool stuff. And by the way, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second, Ben. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be talking about APIs uh, much, much more on a future episode. We have this in our, in our list and our plans. Mm -hmm. So again, stay tuned for that and subscribe. And right. uh, we'll get you some really deep, in-depth, cool stuff about what an API is and why it's cool. Yep. Anyway, back to object storage. Right. So we've defined that they're living in containers and that these containers are called buckets and that these buckets live in somebody's data center. But what makes it different other than the, uh, the interface that we use to communicate with these buckets, what makes it special or makes it different from our typical shared storage or direct attached storage that we might be using independently or part of a work group? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to is like, so it's different. What, why is that better? Well... It's better for some purposes, but, you know, we'll talk through tiers in a minute, right? Um, okay. Because there are certain tiers that you'll definitely want to have object storage for because it makes absolute sense, because it does amazing things. But we wouldn't be able really to edit off of it yet. I'm sure in the future we'll be able to because we're always working towards advances and speed and accessibility and stuff. But because of the way that objects live in that flat file space. And we should probably talk a little bit about that too with the objects, right? What the heck is an object? We said it was a file, but along with it being a file, there are other components to that object, right? There's the data inside it, but then there's usually some metadata describing what's inside that object and maybe even a key. And I know you've done some work with this, Jason. So what can you tell me about that? First of all, I want to say this sounds very familiar because we just talked about this on the last episode, how the mm -hmm. data and the metadata about the data are there. They're yep. all part of what's needed to understand that data. For sure. Uh, so that key that, that Ben just mentioned usually represents some kind of a file path or a file name, which makes the object storage look a little bit like a file system. Right. Is that what you right. were going after? Yeah, right. That's what allows you to access it from somewhere else. Right. And that's what makes sense when you're listing out files and whatever the software is, it might be your MAM, it might be some attachment 
to another storage volume. You know, there are a bunch of file systems out there that allow you to have object as an additional tier that you can then expose as something that is human readable and it's not just these long unique identifiers that we get in the metadata for the objects that are really what represents the objects that would make no sense to us whereas we're used to naming a file something like ben's great file version 2.67 or whatever final new final final exactly so why is object storage different from our typical RAID-based storage? What makes it really different there? You're asking me. <laughs> <What makes it? laughs> I am. Um, it's the next on our list. Is it about the erasure coding? It is. It's all about the erasure coding, which is another terrible name for something that's amazing, right? You know, because Ben, whenever, whenever I think of erasure coding, I always think of, come to me, come and behold me. Together we'll break these chains of love. <laughs> nice. I, I mean, that's what I think of when I think of erasure coding, because um, I'm a nerd and I like coding and I like erasure, so... That's amazing, and I wish that were true. When I think of erasure Darn. coding, I think this coding is going to erase my file because someone doesn't like me. Ah, But okay. I know it's not that. It is, in fact, the opposite. Erasure coding is a data protection scheme that prevents against hardware failure of individual components within the specific system. So the whole idea of erasure coding is that we can take our objects and we can chunk them up into pieces and make sure those pieces are sitting on different hardware chassis, which is we talked a little bit about RAID parity before. I was going to say, it sounds an awful lot like RAID parity. <laughs> but it's not, right? The difference is RAID parity is within a specific group of hard drives. And erasure coding, yeah, it is also within a specific set of hard drives, but those hard drives can live on different hardware platforms too. And in fact... Sure. It gives you the ability to do something like create a volume that has a geographical spread between multiple data centers, which and that's really, the big that's the big distinction here, right? Is the that's is the, the fact magic. that you don't have to build like you do have to build a RAID all in one chassis or you know all in one uh, group of chassis, I suppose. Object storage is different because you do have the ability to spread it out amongst all of your data centers if you so desire. Yeah, right. And we'll talk a little bit about um, disaster recovery coming up, but this is one of those really great use cases. And that's why Amazon can say things like, or, or other cloud vendors, it's not just Amazon, right? So there's Amazon and there's Google and there's Microsoft and there's Backblaze and there's Wasabi. Those are some ah, of the big ones I'm thinking of. IBM, IBM, GCP. right. So... What they've all done is they've built these geo spreads across multiple data centers, which means that essentially the organization can take a licking and keep on ticking, right? Where if one of these data centers goes down, your data can be reconstructed from those pieces, just like we talked about with RAID parity in the last episode. Except what this means is... Um, 
it can take a certain number of chunks and reconstruct the data from that information there. And so there are two basic parameters in erasure coding that we should talk about. One is spread width and the other is disk safety. So spread width is a parameter that determines the number of disk drives that the encoded data is spread across for any given stored object versus disk safety, which determines how many simultaneous drive losses can be tolerated without impact impacting the data's readability. So for example, in object storage, we talk about the storage policy, right? And we'll say we'll have an 18 slash five storage policy, which means any specific object is broken up into 18 chunks and you can lose up to five of those chunks and still maintain the integrity of the object. So any 13 chunks can be used to recreate the object, which is pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. And those chunks might be in different data centers, right? Where we might do something like replicate all of the data from one data center to the other. If we've got a geospread model, you can have chunks that might not all be, like say there's a shared volume between two different offices, right? One maybe in New York, the other say in LA. And both of those have a specific uh, erasure coding parameter that has striped the data across all of the volumes on both coasts. Maybe we don't have all chunks on one coast. Maybe we only have 13 chunks or maybe we only have 12 chunks. But if the volume is up and functioning and we have this geo spread, we can call and say, hey, give me the four chunks I'm missing in order to recreate this file over here. And then boom, you've got it. And so you use less capacity, but then you have this greater advantage of geo spread or having it in multiple places at the same time. Right. So I'm sure it's starting to form a picture for those of us who, you know, maybe are thinking like, why can't we just edit in the cloud or, you know, record or whatever. And one of the challenges, I should say, is that we have this spread of objects, these files, these objects that we're talking about, they don't necessarily represent a video file or an audio file. They could represent uh, very small pieces of those files. So when we have that file completed and up in the bucket or in a bucket or in several buckets or however you want to look at it, Mm -hmm. we already know what that file is. We know where all the pieces are. But if we're getting something coming in as a stream or, you know, whatever, then it becomes uh, a little bit of a different challenge to form those those objects. So that's one of the reasons that writing uh, unknown data, I should say, or un, what would you say, unknown unknown data <laughs> to, a, <laughs> to a cloud bucket where we, we don't necessarily know how large this object is going to be as it's delivered in. When we have a file that's finished and done and, and ready to be played back, that's a different story. But when we're receiving some sort of a stream, um, you know, breaking that up into small little pieces because we don't know necessarily what all the header information is going to be yet is a challenge, so. Yeah, for sure, right, and spreading that out and recreating it quickly. There's a lot of latency to that, and because of the way the data is encoded, there's a whole lot of CPU overhead to create those chunks or um, what they call shards, which I really like because it makes me think of the dark crystal. (laughs) 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 Yes. Yeah, but whenever I think of this uh, specific data protection scheme, 
It always makes me think of quantum mechanics, right? In the many worlds interpretation, or even the idea of the multiverse. And I like mm-hmm. to think about it that way because I really like the idea that there's another version of me out there protecting the data that is essential to Ben Kilberg, and that should I need to be reconstructed somewhere in another universe at some point, those shard points of me in other universes can be pulled together and converge into the best version of me from around the universes. Wow, Ben, that's really (laughs) profound. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. We, uh, yes, we see the universe in very similar light. Yep. (laughs) So, uh, what are the use cases for this? Like, what are the use cases for object storage? It's, it's, we already talked about how it's not really the choice for production, uh, at least on-prem production. Right. And there are certain use cases for being able to use it in production. It's just those use cases at this point in time, at this point in history in 2020. I don't want to say limited. They're just specific. Yeah. So Uh, if we think about some of the major advantages for object storage, right, and we'll, we'll whip out all of the storage buzzwords here, that it is scalable and highly available and low latency. Well, not that low latency, but it's durable and it has a tremendous number of nines, which is essentially a way of saying that you'll almost yeah, never tell us about the lose nines. a file. <laughs> right, yeah. This is just a way that storage vendors describe how safe the data is. And the more nines are attached to the back of it, you know, maybe they'll talk about durability, which is another buzzword for reliability, um, and the number of nines, right? It'll be 99.99% availability, which means there's a 0.01 chance that the volume's going down. Well, if you're saying there's a 99.9999999999 durability I think to that was this nine specific, nines, right? Nine nines, you're right. If there's nine nines, mm-hmm. um, you're effectively saying that you're almost never going to lose a file. So the use cases for this are really good for reliably storing something, right? So as a second tier or an archive tier, and that's why everybody loves it, because it takes the onus off of the IT organization for making sure the data is safe, because it's going to make sure that you're not having awful things like flipped bits. You know, there are all types of self-healing and all sorts of interesting things that the file systems in object storage do that keeps your data safe as houses. Awesome. So it sounds like this object storage technology really has a massive, massive, massive benefit in archiving, right? Yeah, yeah. Or as, as just an additional tier, right? And, you know, it's... sure. Because of the CPU overhead, there's a little bit more latency, so you're not going to be able to press play on the space bar and have it play back multiple streams of 4K video. That's not what it's good for. But if you want to be able to request those files quickly and transfer them back over to your production storage that is really good at streaming those 4K videos, you can get it back really quickly depending upon where those files are located, right? Um, So whether it's in the cloud or maybe it's object storage that you have in your own data center that Mm -hmm. has 10 gigabit connectivity so that you can copy those files really quickly back to your primary production storage, then that's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. So, Ben, let's move our discussion to different tiers of storage, like production, nearline, archive, backup. Let's talk through some of that. Sure. So let's start with production storage. Like production storage is, I think, what most of our listeners will see as the thing that they are interacting with on a regular basis. Our editors and our, you know, media managers are that's that's the production that everybody touches and works on. And that's where we're always talking about, well, it's got to be, you know, lightning fast and lots of bandwidth and, you know, very reliable and robust. Obviously, we want all of our storage to be reliable and robust, but production storage is the storage we're actually working off of. You made reference just a minute ago to having the, the, the many different streams of 4K, and that's where we're looking for that capability, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're talking about production storage, we're typically talking about a shared storage volume that's either a RAID array or multiple RAID arrays that are clustered together within a clustered file system, or like we are talking about a little bit in the last episode, maybe that's a scale-out NAS volume, or it's a SAN volume. Whatever way it is, it's the underlying block storage being presented to multiple users, and that is rated together typically and really fast. It can be comprised of traditional spinning hard disk drives, or it can be comprised of SSDs, or these days we're starting to see the proliferation of NVMe-based shared storage as well, which is something... NVMe! Yeah, we talked a little bit about in the last show that uses entirely different technology that is really pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. It's worth mentioning that we're talking briefly about the NVMe stuff, that it is completely different. There is a protocol that it uses called RDMA, um, Remote Direct Memory Access, or what I like to think of is the Mind Meld Protocol for any of you Star Trek nerds out there. So the basic gist with RDMA is that it bypasses the CPU and it directly connects the storage that is those NVMe disks with the network interface. And so there's a version of it called Rocky or RDMA over converged Ethernet, which allows you to essentially directly access that specific media from a network interface remotely. And so that's where we get incredibly low latency because we're bypassing that CPU, right? It's just wickedly fast. And that's why we can see NVMe volumes giving us from a single array 25 gigabytes a second worth of performance, which is just amazing. Sure is. All right, so that was production storage. Let's talk a little bit about Nearline. Nearline sounds like something that you kind of like, oh, we might be having another volume to kind of back up our data to, or we might be kind of sending things over to this other volume when we're uh, kind of done with the project, but we're not sure. We might need it back in a week. Yeah. Am I on the right track there? You are. Yeah, for sure. The way I think about Nearline is we have online, we have offline, 
and we have near line. So if it's near line, that means it's it's near. It's not your production storage, but it's something that you can get to easily, right? It might be a separate NAS volume. It might be a volume that you're using as backup. So maybe they're synchronizing. Maybe you have a NAS volume that's what we like to call cheap and deep. You know, maybe it's a huge uh, lower cost NAS volume that isn't as fast. Maybe it's not SSD. Maybe it's not 10,000 RPM HDDs. Maybe it's not, you know, 300 hard disks or whatever it is all spinning together as one amazing cacophonous, super powerful volume. It's a little bit slower, but you can get to it and maybe it's over 10 gigabit Ethernet and you can pull the files back easily if somebody does something like deletes a file or Ah. corrupts a file or even if it's just you want to have something easily accessible maybe it's from a past season that you might want to pull something back from and the ma'am knows where it is maybe the ma'am moved it over to this nearline volume and maybe you're not quite ready to have it archived but it's around so that you can get to it easily great the nearline volume could be spinning disk it is an excellent use case for object and in some cases it's a good use case for LTO you know we typically think of tape as archive but some people consider tape nearline as well gotcha okay so speaking of archive why don't we move on to archive archive is the shelf that you put things on when you're done with them that is in a locked bunker temperature controlled and very, very, very safe that you also have another one of somewhere else to back that archive up, just like in contact, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So when you're done working on something and you don't need it around anymore, but you still want to keep it and make sure it's safe as houses, then you make a copy or two copies or three copies if you're being prudent and you keep those somewhere safe. Maybe one copy stays in a tape library um, and maybe there's another copy of the tape that goes home with you or um, it goes into Iron Mountain or somewhere like that that is literally in a vault underground that is a bomb shelter. Right. And we see a lot of transition into cloud storage these days from many different types of archive. You know, I've seen personally disk-based archives and transitioning those to sometimes LTO, but then sometimes going straight to object storage in the cloud or maybe even object storage on-prem. The point is safe, secure, and duplicated somewhere else. Because again, you always want to have a backup of your data, whether it's archived or not. This is a a point that I like to make sure people understand is that just because you have put something in the archive doesn't mean it is safe if that is the only copy. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, backup of the backup, backup of the archive. Uh, Right. And And that's another really good use case for object like we're talking about earlier, right? Because it has that level of redundancy and you can use it for geospread. So that's why people use object-based cloud storage like S3 or Backblaze B2 or Wasabi um, or Azure. All of those are really good for archive because you know that it's going to be safe because those vendors are making sure that it's safe. And it's not your job to make sure that it's safe. It's their job. So that's why everybody likes that. And that's one of the things that you are paying them for is to keep that data safe. That's part of the deal. Um, The other thing that isn't always true, but it's often true, is that the data, once it gets into the archive, does not get out of the archive. 
So I like to make a distinction when we mm. talk about the the act of archiving something. There is no unarchiving. There is only restoring. Yeah. Because <laughs> unarchiving kind of implies that it's coming out of the archive and then it's not in there anymore. Right. Uh, like I said, it's not always true, but for the most part, once something goes into the archive, it's always there. Uh, right. You may you may bring it back and restore it to your production storage or your nearline, and then you may purge it from your production storage or nearline once you are finished with it. But it is still in the archive. Right. So that's just a distinction I I always like to try and make. Yep. And unless you decide that you're going to stop paying for that specific storage tier because you've run out of money or because the compliance rules or liability have run out. Maybe, you're, maybe you only have to keep those files for seven years and then you can finally delete it or stop paying for that specific storage bucket. I would say the exception that I have seen in the industry to that is uh, you know, an organization that might be managing content for another organization and they have an agreement as to how long that information can be kept. Right. Uh, maybe through various business deals and whatnot, that content is not available anymore and needs to be purged from the archive. We've certainly seen those 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 cases, and that does happen. But right, uh, yeah, archive is typically your place that you store things that you need to keep for all eternity. So let's move on to disaster recovery, what we often call backup. We're oh. are you are you ready to move on to backup? I am for sure. I was going to okay. say it is absolutely worth talking about the difference between disaster recovery and business continuity and backup, right? Ah, uh, okay. See, I I think of backup as part of business continuity. And you're absolutely right, it is. Right. Just so, as disaster recovery is. Exactly. exactly. But if we're talking about storage, it's yes. worth hashing out all of the use cases and defining how they might be a little bit different. And let's first say... I believe we said this on the last episode. I can't remember, but RAID is oh, not yeah. a backup. Correct. I'm going to say this again. RAID is not a backup. Right. It, right. It, makes your, it makes your data a little bit safer, but it is not a backup. Yeah. It will save you from losing a hard drive or two hard drives, but it's not going to save you from losing the entire data center. Yes, exactly. Or uh, maybe accidental file deletion. That's not something that RAID is going to help you with. Correct. So let's talk about the 321 policy. What's the deal with the 321 policy? It has to do with uh, how many copies of data we have? So 321, three copies of your most important data, two different technologies used to protect the data. Maybe mm -hmm. it's cloud and LTO, or maybe it's spinning disk and object. And one copy that is off-site or remote. Okay. Okay. And I would think that we could all think about why those three, two, ones would be important. But let's just let's just outline them real quick. So let's boomerang back to the business continuity and disaster recovery stuff, because okay. I think that'll help us kind of go through it. Right. So when we're talking about a business continuity plan and business continuity in general, what we're talking about is the need to mitigate the effects of a disruptive event, such as something like a cybersecurity event or a power failure or a pandemic. Global pandemic. Right. <laughs> or or uh, aliens attacking you or other strange natural disasters. Something bad has happened and you can't get 
to your data or you need to plan for something bad happening and being able to maintain or resume business operation when that event occurs. So what does resuming business operation look like if uh, someone has broken into your data center and taken an axe to your right? <laughs> exactly. What if Jason Voorhees shows up at your office? What are you going to do then? <laughs> well, hopefully you're not there. Hopefully you're, <laughs> hopefully you're, at, you're at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Jason can uh, axe all of the raids he wants and not hurt anybody. Right. Uh, but... Yeah, so yeah, so so your business continuity plan has to include what part of your data set after it was lost do you absolutely need to have right away to resume business functions. So let's let's talk a little bit about the recovery point objective versus the recovery time objective. So okay. recovery point really means what does it mean to be operational? How much data do you need back to be up and running again versus your recovery time objective, which says, how quickly do you need to be operational? Um, mm -hmm. Swinging back again to disaster recovery, because if Jason comes and sticks an axe in your raid, you're going to need to recover from that disaster. Let's talk about what disaster recovery is, which is really a part or a subset of that business continuity plan that outlines how to recover the contents of that data set or to restore the functionality of that data center if that disaster destroys the primary site or otherwise renders it inoperable. Destroys the primary site. There's a big one that yeah. a lot of us don't think about. Right. You know, uh, you're you, <laughs> losing a hard drive or two in a raid is one thing, but what if the site just goes away? What um, if scary. the office building decides to do HVAC maintenance and doesn't tell you? And what if it gets to be 100 degrees in that room? Maybe you don't lose electricity, but maybe your raid melts because it's too damn hot. Because it may be 86 degrees outside, but inside that whirring fortress of doom that we call a raid array and uh, the CPUs for the servers, it might be 130 degrees and then the components start melting. Absolutely. And this does happen, folks. It does happen. It does <laughs> so. happen. So what do we do in case we lost the production storage? Well, we start thinking about what do we need back? How fast do we need it back? Do we need everything back right away? Maybe. Is it just, yeah, is it just the works in progress? Is, right. it, um, is it the works in progress plus this core set of data that all of our projects involve? That's the kind of uh, discussions that we are having when we talk about the business continuity element and backup and how they interact with each other. So in the industry, they'll call it a business impact analysis, where you try and understand what the operational, financial, and physical risks to your company are should that kind of disruption occur. And then you go on and do something called a gap analysis, where you figure out what recovery requirements you have versus what the business's current resources are. So do you have offsite storage? Nope. Well, you better get one of those. Is there a second volume in the data center that is doing replication on a regular basis? Yes. All right. Awesome. So you can sustain a file deletion, but if Jason attacks your data center, you're effed. Right. Or you have this 
this melting situation that we just mentioned. Exactly, right. I mean, unless the, the replica volume is in another data center, which that's perfectly doable, feasible. Right. Um, you might have lost that too. Yep. So that's why this is a multi-pronged approach, this uh, disaster recovery and business continuity discussion. It, there's always a multi-pronged approach. Also, your budget comes into consideration. Absolutely. Uh, if you say we absolutely need to have everything back online tomorrow... Well, that is totally possible, but it might cost you quite a bit more than uh, just the stuff that you need to get through that next day. Yep. Yeah. I mean, when I talk with folks about business continuity and disaster recovery, specifically speaking about storage, the way I usually think about it is that business continuity storage lives in your data center. But that's not, it's just a piece of the puzzle, right? Because when I'm thinking business continuity, I mean, the edit needs to continue to happen, right? Like the raid has gone down or shared storage volume is down, but you need to keep creating the media you need to create in order to get paid. And so if you have a secondary volume, it might be a spinning disk backup volume that you can at least mount on people's edit workstations, and maybe they're copying those files that they need to finish and reconnect with locally, then at least we can do that. So I think about that as part of business continuity in general. Disaster recovery, the way I think about that in terms of storage is it's always offsite. Because if aliens attack your data center, if Jason comes for you, if things burn up, or if, say, your HVAC um, starts leaking water because maybe you've got one of those funny little pumps that uh, pulls the condensate, condensate. out of mm -hmm. the um, split mini ductlet system that's sitting on the wall and it goes, those pumps die sometimes and you've got water rushing into the bottom of your storage units. Maybe something like that happens. Anyway. I have walked into several data centers and seen these mini splits that are in the ceiling mm -hmm. right above the racks of gear and I've, I've scratched my beard a little bit. Yep, right. So scary. But that's why we, yeah, it is scary, but that's why we have these disaster recovery discussions. Yep. Indeed. Uh, okay. So Ben, what are some scenarios where we would need to engage the disaster recovery? We talked about the physical disasters. Let's talk about some other ones. Right. So people being people, they delete things. Sometimes um, you fat finger a file and you're moving things around and maybe sometimes you have accidentally delete things or move things into the trash can you didn't mean to. Um, maybe you drag a file into the wrong folder and now nobody can figure out where it went because, well, people are people and sometimes their hands get a little shaky and buggy because I me. know mine do. Yeah. So if we have access to a backup volume and we can have our friendly local neighborhood administrator drag those files back and restore it, or maybe we can even restore it through the MAM because we have access to that ourselves, then that's amazing. Maybe there are snapshots. Maybe there is versioning happening somewhere in your backup plan or your disaster recovery storage, right? Snapshots are essentially small pictures or windows in time of what's on the volume. Ah, so time machine backup kind of. Is what yeah, right. So it's, yeah, yeah that's, that's essentially the idea, right? Um, and Apple made us all aware of how important our data was. And it's really nice that they kind of built that into the operating system. And hopefully your mom and dad and even you use it. But there are fancier versions to do it on the enterprise level and um, usually it involves something called uh, delta block compression, where you can only take what the differences are in the file 
and keep copies of what those change states are in the snapshot or maybe in the replica that only the changes are going across. And so as part of the replication process, you're getting those changes and you're seeing those changes on maybe an hourly basis. Maybe it's by the minute if you're really paranoid, or maybe it's just happening every night. Sure. Awesome. Well, let's talk about some of the characteristics of some of these tiers and how we would spec them out. Uh, So we're really talking about bandwidth, capacity, of, sure. of, of some of these tiers. So production storage capacity and bandwidth tuning would be completely different than, say, a nearline or an archive or even yeah. DR. Right. Yeah, for sure. If I'm thinking about a backup volume, I don't really care how performative it is. The only um, baseline for the backup storage <laughs> You might I'm... during a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, my friend. Touche. Yeah. Unless part of your backup strategy is having an additional data center where in a pinch you need to send editors with their machines and they can go and they can mount that storage and get access to it. Or maybe you're resharing that storage out over the internet because that's what we're doing these days. Um, Mm -hmm. So obviously there needs to be a baseline of performance that most shared storage volumes will provide. Whether it's spinning disk in its traditional RAID or its object storage, you're going to be able to copy those files quickly to whatever the destination is going to be. There's going to be that baseline storage, but more importantly, what I think about with backup or disaster recovery storage is the capacity right? Because we right. want to be able to keep those versions in our snapshots. Or um, if our backup strategy has something going on with incremental backups that are really just taking those pictures, we might call them snapshots versus a full backup, right? Or what, what we might call seeding a backup, which is to copy everything. And seeding is, again, kind of a bad way of describing it because seeds seem so very small versus what we're really doing is <laughs> taking a cutting of it and growing a whole new tree or person and then we have an identical copy which right. <laughs> it makes me think of that um do you ever see that movie multiplicity i have heard of that movie i have not oh, seen it dude yet. you need to watch that it's amazingly okay. hilarious uh, take that as an action item <laughs> right it, you sh- you should um tv's michael keaton our batman our beetlejuice our birdman Yeah, so he essentially uh, decides to clone himself to be more productive. And let's just say there's generation loss, and it's hilarious. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think I've seen clips from this movie because that that all is ringing. That's ringing lots of bells. Yep. Uh, Anyway, I digress. So we digress. Uh, So I have a note here to talk about Ben's closet analogy, (laughs) and I don't remember why. Ben, what's your closet analogy? Okay, so when we're talking about capacity and we're talking about volumes and we're talking about bandwidth, one of the things that I always talk to people about is safely usable capacity. Because when we have a shared storage volume, one of the things that we will always do, just like with our paychecks, is spend every last dollar or use every last gigabyte that we can because they're there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I Cut talk off about making the decision about what you want to delete until later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, unless you have really good administrators. Right. But so where I liken this to 
a closet is, say you've got a closet and it's really full and you haven't done anything to organize that closet and everything is just shoved in there and you need to find, say there's two shoes and they're not together. One is up high, one is down low. It takes a long time to find those two shoes and pull them together and then make a wonderful ensemble versus if your closet is well organized, you have some free space in there, it's easy to go in and boom, you can pull those shoes out easily, lightning fast. You can pull your um, jacket out and your pants out and your shirt out and boom, you've got it versus everything is jungled, jumbled in there and maybe it is a big jungle. And, it's and hard remember to get that to. everything being jumbled on a file system doesn't have anything to do with whether you've organized it into files and folders or not. Because all of that data is written in blobs, and Correct. once it gets to the end, right. it starts filling in all the gaps from what you deleted. Exactly. So all of that data can be all over the place, and right. you actually do not have a way to organize it. You have a way to, to visualize it, but you don't have a way to really organize it. You got so it. When you get the, when you got the closet full, you're in, you're in trouble. <laughs> right. So... When we were talking about read-write arms and the mechanics of spinning disks, what happens there is if there are not sectors on the hard drives that are close together, what it has to go and do is to make really quick movements a across the platters to find those two different portions of the files because just like our shoes, maybe it's stuck one up high and maybe it's stuck one down low. Um, and so it's got to pull those together to make the pair of shoes just like the hard drives have to pull those different disparate sections of the file to reconstruct the file so that the, you can then stream it and play it and witness beautiful video. And so if it can't do that in a timely fashion, then that's when you have dropped frames and everybody is unhappy. So the long story short there is keep things at at least 85% of their total capacity. That's what we always say is safe, usable capacity. So leave that overhead alone so that you know that your storage volume is going to work well for you going forward. Right. So capacity versus bandwidth and mm. how they influence each other. Let's talk about that a bit. Okay. Because you've got all these drives packed into a couple of boxes and that's your capacity, but it's also your bandwidth in a sense. Yeah, right? right. So let's break it down. Um, one of the things I do a lot as a solutions architect is figure out these simple math problems for people. So let's, in an example, say we've got 10 editors in our organization. And of these 10 editors, they are editing four streams of ProRes apiece, right? We'll just, for now, we'll stick with ProRes HQ 1080-2997 with two channels of 48K and uh, at 24-bit audio, right? And let's say that that's 32 megabytes a second per stream. So if we have 10 editors with four streams apiece, that's 40 streams of video simultaneously. Wow. So yep. 32 megabytes a second times 40 is 1,280 megabytes a second. So that's what we think of as our aggregate bandwidth. That is the overall speed that we need to hit as a target for a storage volume for all of these editors to edit simultaneously. And so 
How does capacity influence bandwidth? Sometimes we have a certain number of hard disks within a storage array that might equate to a specific amount of bandwidth, right? Maybe it's only 12 drives, and each set of 12 drives adds, say, another 750 megabytes a second worth of performance. And so maybe if we add two of those together, we're getting close to our target bandwidth. Maybe if we add four of those together, then we know if we have some safe overhead, right? Um, What if we take that and change it to 4K. Well, if we're using 4K Ultra HD at 2997, it goes up to 124 megabytes a second. And so that's when we need an aggregate bandwidth of 4,960 megabytes a second, um, Mm -hmm. which is a lot more. So that's why our jump from HD to 4K means we need more and faster storage. And this is where the analogy of if you grew four times or eight times your size, would you still be able to get in your front door and use the same house? No. Would you still be able to get into your car and go as fast as you did when you were your original size? Nope. You need a bigger road. You need faster network interfaces. I mean, you need a bigger house. Yeah. Right. So this is uh, one of the reasons that we have discussions when when some of our partners and clients come to us and say that they need to start working with 4K or 8K and they've been working with something smaller than that. It's not just about the space that you have on your SAN. Yep. This bandwidth comes into uh, com- really comes into the discussion as a b- really big part of it. Yep. Right. And. You know, there are anomalies, too. Maybe you've got NAS file sharing happening at the same time, and maybe there's just people watching a, you know, a file here or there. So there are bandwidth overhead calculations that we add in there, too, just to make sure that there's a good chunk of overhead aggregate bandwidth for the organization. And maybe you've got two finishers, and maybe they're using ProRes 4x4XQ at 4K, which is 433 megabytes a second. Um, So you add that up on top of what's roughly five gigabytes per second, you know, that's another gigabyte on top of it. And that's where we really start to see the need for a volume that can provide close to 10 gigabytes a second worth of aggregate bandwidth. Awesome. Okay, Ben. So let's bring this home. We talked about on-prem versus remote cloud storage. We talked in this episode about cloud storage primarily. Uh, and then we transitioned a little bit and talked about the different tiering of storage, production, nearline, backup archive. We talked a little bit about safety and what safety of your data means, uh, how, can, how you can have good performance, how you can have both safety and performance at the same time. And the last thing that we want to mention once again is that RAID is not a backup. RAID is not a backup. Enough. RAID's not a backup. So... Uh, back up your stuff. <laughs> please, dear God, please. All right. So this workflow therapy session is brought to you by the letters C-H-E-S and the letter A. The Workflow Show is a production of Chesapeake Systems and produced with help from More Banana Productions. I'm Jason Whetstone, Senior Workflow Engineer. And I'm Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect. And Ben also records and edits the show. And if you enjoy the show, again, please subscribe in your podcasting app of choice and tell a friend or a coworker about the show. We'd love to hear what you love about the show. So email us at workflowshow at jessa.com. And thanks for listening to The Workflow Show.